Have any of you ever been a part of what might be considered a mic drop moment? A moment where someone does something or says something that changes the tenor of a conversation or of a gathering uh, in good ways or bad ways. There are mic drop moments that just bring a change and a moment of clarity to a situation. As many of you know, I had an inauspicious career as a bench player on a basketball team in high school. Uh, it's something I like to talk about a lot. I probably have talked about it more than minutes played in games, but, uh, but I took pride in being on uh, a team and being the hustle player at the end of the bench. When I got to college, I was very active in the intramural scene, uh, but it was when I got to Japan after college that was probably the apex the culmination, the high point of my basketball career. That took place in a three-on-three -three basketball tournament. Now, as many of you know, I lived in a rural section of Japan, uh, but when we got together with other foreign teachers on our program who lived in this rural section of Japan, one of the guys was taller than anyone else there uh, in our teaching group. He was six foot eight. Uh, his name uh, is Derek Jerome. And Derek was a sweet guy, wonderful guy, uh, very gentle guy, but he was just huge. And in rural Japan, uh, where the, the normal height is, is shorter than here uh, in the States, Derek really stood out. I mean, he was just taller than, than anybody else in any situation he went into. And he came up to me at this gathering, he hadn't been there long, and he said to me, hey, I, I heard you play basketball. I was like, well, you know, I don't like to brag, but I'm kind of a big deal in the bench playing world of you know, Atlanta, Georgia basketball in the early 90s, you may have heard of me. Uh, and then I said, you know, do, do, do you play? You're pretty tall. And he said, yeah, I played on the uh, Canadian uh, under 19 national team. I was like, oh, well, we're basically the same, like in, in kind of how we do that. And, uh, he said, anyway, there's a three-on-three -three basketball tournament in my little village, and I've entered it and want to get two other people to come play with me. Do you want to come play on my team? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. He said, there's one other guy that plays. He's going to come play. And so it's on a Saturday. We came to, took a train there uh, on the Saturday, show up. And when Derek walked in, the eyes of every other player was fixed on him. He was so much taller than bigger than anyone else. And he knew it, right? And so all the other teams are there warming up, and there were some very good, very skilled players players, but no one nearly as tall as Derek. And Derek knew this and he goes, he just looks at me, he goes, give me the ball. And so I just handed him the ball and all the teams are warming up and he goes and he takes three steps and does a one-handed slam dunk on the basket. And all the people there are watching him and he knew this was happening and everyone's like, oh, like this. And we won the tournament right there. <laughs> the tournament was over at that moment. And we did, we won the whole thing. Uh, because everyone there knew that the dynamics of the tournament had just shifted because this person was there. Now, the only game that actually got close was the game when I started shooting the ball some. <laughs> and no lie, Derek looked at me as we were bringing the ball at one time. He goes, hey man, play good defense and throw me the ball. I was like, right, absolutely. Sorry that I take some shots, give him the ball. He, we, we won the tournament. The cool thing was we won lawn furniture. I don't know why they gave that away, but that was the, what the winning team got was lawn furniture. Derek was too big for the lawn furniture. The other guy didn't want it, so I made off with all of the lawn furniture that then saw Beth and myself uh, into our first year of marriage. We had great lawn furniture. <laughs> of all my basketball playing days, that was the high point. But when Derek slammed that ball, it was a mic drop moment where every eye was on him 
and everything changed. I want you to keep that in mind as we read our scripture passage for today from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this day, that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I think that this mic drop moment does is it causes us to realize something about Jesus. Causes us to realize, among other things, that Jesus wasn't just this person wandering the Galilean countryside, talking about love and, and healing people, and these bully Pharisees keep messing with him. What we see here is to kick off his ministry, Jesus is not a conflict avoider. He goes and he picks a fight. He goes in, and people are like, no, not my Jesus. He doesn't fight. No, he goes and he starts a conflict. It's not violent, but he goes and picks a fight. He goes on the Sabbath day into his home synagogue when all the religious people and everyone there knew he wasn't part of the religious establishment. He unrolls the scroll of prophet Isaiah, prophesying hundreds of years before about the anointed one, the Messiah. He reads it, says, this has now been fulfilled right here in your sight because I am that one. Closes the scroll, shortest sermon in history, sits down and says, it's done. The whole trajectory of his life changes in that moment. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to marvel that in this sort of mic drop moment, I want us to think about something today. And what I want us to think about is that among many things that this proclamation Jesus makes, what it entails is that it is an amazing declaration of clarity of purpose. That Jesus is saying of all the verses in the Old Testament, of anything that he could pull from, he's going, these are the two verses that sum up what I'm about. These are the two verses that are going to uh, shape and describe what my life and my ministry is going to be about. And it is powerful in life for us to have clarity. It is powerful in life for us to have clarity as individuals. What are you about? Well, I'm kind of about this and I sort of like that. And you know, Boom, two verses. This is it. It's powerful as an organization to have clarity of purpose that is simple and straightforward. We're a community encouraging one another to follow Jesus where we live, work, and play. That is who we are. That is what we are doing. That is what we're trying to build. Well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and we kind of do that, and I sort of like that, and this person likes this, and no, boom, this is what we are. Do you have that kind of clarity in your life? 
In two verses of the whole Old Testament, this is what he picks out. I want to bring these back up on the screen because in the midst of what's taking place there, I want us to see the two verses, to focus on what he says these two verses are from Isaiah that describe his life and his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that describe Jesus? I don't want to do this much as we follow his life uh, over the first part of this year. But as we look ahead in Bible studies, does that describe the life and ministry of Jesus? I think we can look at it and go, yeah, that's pretty much what he does. He goes and he, and, he, and he preaches good news to the poor and he brings recovery of sight to, the, sight to the blind. And I love this phrase, he sets the captives free. He proclaims to all people the Lord's favor. That's pretty much what he does. He lives a life that is really in alignment with who he said he was gonna be. And these two verses have clarity. Do you have that kind of clarity in your life? As to why you're here, why you exist, what you're about. Now, when we look at how Jesus does this, we look at it in his life and ministry, we see that he does this in a couple of ways. He does this with people who are literally financially poor. He does this with people who live under systems of injustice and oppression at the time. What makes him so threatening to the authorities is that when he starts his movement, he picks a family that doesn't come from uh, the elites of society. He doesn't pick followers that come from the elites of society. He goes into temples like this and he does things that the elites of society, that the religious establishment haven't said that he's supposed to be able to do. That he looks and he says to people who have been told their whole lives that they are on the margins and that they don't count as much as some other people, that they count that they are created in the image of God, that they are created in the Imago Dei. And when you look at how the difference that made, when Christianity, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, when Christianity really began to spread around the Roman Empire, it spread among two people groups primarily. Two people groups took the gospel around the world. The first people group was slaves. Slaves who said to each other about this different kind of message. And the second group were women. And I want to be very clear in what I'm about to say. I am not saying this. I'm not saying that this is a good thing. But at the time, there wasn't often much of a difference between those two groups. Women were seen as the property of their father, or if they were married, kind of the property of, uh, of their husband. Again, please understand me. I don't want any emails this week. I get enough of them already. I'm not saying that that's what I believe. I'm just saying at the time, that's how the culture worked. And Christianity spread like wildfire among those two groups who had been told their whole lives, you are second class. You are not in the room where it happens. You are not included in the decision-making and the power structures of society. And it was to them to hear a message that said, you are fully loved, you are fully welcomed. God died for you as much as God died for anybody else. To restore that humanity was liberation. And you can't talk about Jesus and take him seriously without talking about that. But the other group is not only did he do this with people who were literally oppressed, literally financially poor, but he did it with people who were spiritually poor. And spiritual poverty cuts across all financial lines. You can have some of the wealthiest people in the world today, but I'm not certain that their financial wealth makes them spiritually rich. Not always. And so Jesus welcomes people that even his followers were like, are they included? 
A tax collector who's gotten rich in this kind of immoral way? A Roman centurion, part of the oppressor? You're like working in, 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 in him? Different Pharisees? So there were some Pharisees that came to Jesus like Nicodemus in John chapter three and called him rabbi and said, teach me about your way. Jesus' embrace was so wide, he welcomed all of them in as well. Jesus' embrace, if we take it seriously, is so wide that it makes every single person at one point or another a little uncomfortable. Oh, they're included too? They're included. Absolute clarity about what his life is about. Absolute clarity about the purpose he's supposed to have. Do you have that kind of clarity? Because what I want you to know today is that you should. And by that, I don't mean we're all gonna write our personal mission statements to say what we're about. What I want you to know is the clarity Jesus has about his life is what your life is meant to be about. It's what our life is meant to be about. That's why God created you, to do the same work. You have been anointed and sent to do the same work in Austin, Texas, and around the world in 2022 that Jesus was called to do today. Our church ought to have the exact same, very simple, straightforward clarity. This is what we're about. To preach good news to the poor, to bring sight to the blind, to set captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, why do we say that we're called to do that? Um, I heard recently a, a kind of an interesting conversation that took place. And if you are not a kind of a theology dork like me, you might not find this very interesting, but just roll with me for a second because it illustrates the point. Uh, the conversation that was being written about was what do we call the Great Commission? Why is, it such a, why is that commission so great? The Great Commission is in the head of the Bible, uh, scripture passages. It's in most English translations. It comes from Matthew chapter 28. Uh, the last part of the Gospel of Matthew. I use this at almost every baptism I do, so I hope it sounds familiar. Uh, to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. It's the Great Commission. If you grew up in church, people told you this is the Great Commission. You've got to learn it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to know it. You've heard it. But the point of this conversation is like, who got, why is it the Great Commission? Did Jesus say that? Did Jesus sit there and go, hey, I've given you other commissions. This is the great one. No, he didn't say that. Does Matthew, when he writes the gospel, say, hey, there's other commandments, but this is the one that's really great. Matthew doesn't say it. In fact, if you look at most of the history of the church, there is no such thing that you would call as the great commission. If you asked a biblical scholar, the foremost biblical scholar for most of the history of Christianity, said, hey, what, what, what is the Great Commission? They'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. No, 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 you know. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and they'd be like, no, that's Matthew 28. No, 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 it's the Great Commission. It says so right here in my translation of the Bible. Where did that come from? Started in the 17th and 18th century with European foreign mission trips going, hey, our job is to go out and to baptize around the world. Now, I wanna be clear about something. When you look at the history of church and the history of foreign missions, there's a lot of great stuff that came out of that. There's also some not great stuff that came out of that. And part of that came from, in Matthew 28, it's like, hey, our job, you got baptized. Baptize them, that's, what, that's the command, I'm gonna go do it. In this conversation, they said, what if the Great Commission was renamed? I mean, someone named it a few hundred years ago. Let's rename it. And what if for our day and age, the Great Commission changed to John chapter 20, verse 21, that I want to bring up here. So what if this was the Great Commission? Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
As the Father has sent me, so I send you. In other words, the ends can't justify the means. It's not, well, well, we baptize him. I know we weren't always perfect, but we baptized him. No, no, no. Jesus is sending us as he was sent. How was he sent? He was sent very clearly to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to bring sight to the blind, to proclaim to all people the year of the Lord's favor. He's crystal clear. This is what he's about. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I send. You are to exhibit that same character. Where you live, where you work, where you play. I'm going to ask you again to think about it. Do you have that kind of clarity of purpose to who you are and what you're about? And what I want us to do for the last few minutes that I have is I want us to switch gears a little bit and do something that we don't always do as a church, but I think it's important because when Jesus says, as the Father sends me, so I send you, he's talking about us together, the church. And I want to take a second to talk about and to think about where we are as a church in living this out and what our future might look like. Because the American church has taken this teaching from Jesus and divided it into two separate paths. There's a social justice path and an evangelical path. There's a liberal progressive path and a conservative path. And what I want you to see is that for one of those groups, the idea is, oh, well, you know, we kind of help the poor and the hungry and everything else. And the other group's like, well, we want people who are spiritually oppressed to kind of hear the gospel and the good news. And, and we have that. This has become how we operate as Christians so often. I had this happen this week. I'm serving as a reference for a friend of mine who's interviewing for a job at a church. And he said, will you, will, you, know, will you be a reference for me? I was like, sure, I'd be happy to. And the church called me and they said, well, we want to make certain that he's going to be a good fit. And I said, yeah, I said, we want to be clear. We're not an evangelical church. We're a, just, we're a social justice church. And just to be clear, that's not throwing rocks at one side. The other side does it just as much. And what I want us to see in this passage is that that is not a biblical choice we can make. It is not an either or. And every time we live in that polarized paradigm, there are a lot of words going through my head, it is wrong. I'm just gonna stop with that. It is wrong. It is not biblically justifiable. It is a both and. It is a holistic calling that we have. And so I wanna ask the question, how are we doing at that? Are we veering too much one side or the other? Are we clear about our purpose as a church? What kind of church are we a part of? And what are we seeking to become based on this purpose? Well, the first thing is, are we a church where we're seeking to lift up those who live in poverty, actual poverty, actual homelessness? Are we seeking to work against systems of injustice that exist in our city, in our nation, in our world? Are we aware of that and seeking to proclaim good news to the poor? And I hope that we are. Of anything that has happened in recent years, our church, if you look at the, and again, not feelings, but if you look at the budget, if you look at who we are, we have become much more externally focused. We have a, a, an enhanced number of staff, a full-time mission director. We have a sense of what is taking place in the city. Our mission budget has grown. We've had the love letter fund, which we've invested a lot in. You're gonna be getting updates on that really soon. It's exciting what's taking place. Seeking to lift up and to welcome all people at the table saying that they're included. 
But one of the things that I want you to know that happened this week, and it makes me so excited, and this church just needs to know about this because you made this happen, is that in recent years, we have become stronger and we've been blessed financially. We have continued to be blessed financially. And so a few years ago, when we finished the 2019 year, we had a surplus. And the session at that point said, we're going to take that surplus and give $100,000 to mission. We're just going to give it to the mission committee on top of everything they already had. And they took that and they found out about an organization called RIP Medical Debt. And, and this got a lot of publicity and the statesman wrote a story about it. And um, it was actually turned into one of the most commented stories of the year for the statesman. Uh, all these like weird debates. And it was fascinating watching the public respond to it. But we were able through that organization to take that $100,000, and you know this, we don't have to go back through it, and turn that into $10 million of medical debt forgiveness for the poorest of the poor in Central Texas. Thousands of families received letters saying it's gone, it's erased, it is no more. Now what didn't get as much attention is last year we had a very financially healthy year again, and the mission committee received not $100,000, they received more, $125,000. It came from the surplus, they upped it again. And in the last year, that was given, uh, and the statesman didn't write a story about it, so we not, it's not as like, widely known, but it was divided up among some different agencies that we work with, that we know, who are working against homelessness in the city, which has become such a, a prominent issue for us. Not just seeking to alleviate symptoms of homelessness, although it was to do that, but to also get involved with organizations seeking to eradicate the root causes of homelessness. How do we invest in ways that people don't go into homelessness? How do we help people find ways systematically out of homelessness? And to make that more of, a, of an on-ramp for homelessness to end. And I'm proud of that. You should be proud of that. You made that happen. Literal poor people had, people who are poor and homeless had the gospel come to life. What's exciting is that this past week our session met and we again had a very financially healthy year. And what I love about our session is that they increased it again. And so a few days ago, our mission committee got the word that this year there's $200,000 from last year that they are tasked with figuring out how to give away to serve the poor in this city. It's amazing to be a part of. And it's amazing to think about and to see about how that can continue to grow and take place. And I don't say that that we should congratulate ourselves. I think five years from now, 10 years from now, we want to be the kind of place that looks back and say, this was just a stepping stone to continue to grow in this. There's more and more and more to do, but we need to be the kind of place that in all that's taking place has clarity that this work, you cannot be a faithful Christian and ignore the needs of those who are in, around us. The poor and the marginalized, the blind and the oppressed, the captives who exist in our world today. We gotta keep growing in that area. But what I also want us to hear is that we have to keep growing in the area of reaching out to those who are spiritually impoverished. Because as cost of living as our city has gone up, as the dynamics in this city have been changing, as we've been growing a lot as a city, I'm not certain we're any wealthier spiritually. And we have a call in that. You and I have a call in that. Because when you don't have a sense of the love of God, when you don't have a sense of the presence of who God is in your life, you gotta find meaning some way. And the way that we default as a culture to find meaning, many of us, and this is the city we live in, this is the world we live in, is the way you find meaning when you don't have a spiritual base that's strong is you find it in your work, your achievements, your successes. You earn your way to showing you're somebody. How are you guys doing? Good, my grandkids just got into Georgetown. How does that tell me how you're doing? 
What's a star on my belt that I can put there to show that we're somebody, that we're doing something? I, I, have, I have stumbled upon how this works-oriented, success-driven world, has, how, just how deeply rooted it is in us as my oldest daughter is starting the process of looking at colleges. Because you know something, and, and some of you do, this has blown my mind in recent months, is that to get into certain colleges, they look at grades, they look at SAT scores, and then they want to know how many volunteer hours do you have to put on your resume? And there is a number of volunteer hours that to get into competitive colleges, you've got to show you've done it. You've got to have the SAT scores, you've got to have a grade point average, and you better show me you cared. And so some of the most competitive things to get into are programs to serve for high school juniors and seniors to show. Do they care? No one asks that question. It's they got to show that they care so that I can get into the school I want to get into. I got to achieve my volunteer hours to do that. Once I clear 50 hours, are you going to keep volunteering? Absolutely not. I just did it to get into college to show what? That I'm somebody. That's the world I grew up in, man. That's the world I grew up in. Like the vast majority of people in our world today, it was about your name, it was about where you got into college, it was about what you do for that, it was about what takes place. And there is a destruction that exists when that is how we find our meaning. First and foremost, it does exactly what's taking place in our society right now, which is that it makes us completely isolated and alone. Because everyone's the competition. Everybody I'm measuring myself up against. Everybody is, is competing for the same scarcity of stuff, of titles, of success. And so everybody is constantly a measuring stick that I got to get beyond. And that takes away from ever truly having intimacy. But what it also does is it sets up, which we have perf almost perfected in our culture today, is a system of living lies of projecting success and the things that make us a success and hiding the things that would take away from anybody's image of us. And we become experts at spin and experts at covering things up and experts about which fo uh, photos to put on Facebook or Instagram to show that our vacation was the greatest vacation ever and nobody else has had that kind of a great vacation. But it's not the whole story. I remember when my parents got a divorce. All these people come up, it's like, oh, I can't, I, you, I never thought your parents. I remember one of my brothers one time saying, nobody thought it would happen except their three children. I think one of the strangest parts of scripture is when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? It's like, who doesn't want to be made well? Well, the fact is most of us don't. Because being made well takes hard work and honesty and sometimes going to dark places in order for light to shine. What we'd rather do is like, I don't actually want to be made well, I just want it to appear that I'm well. And there is a captivity and a slavery to living that life of constant stress and anxiety and achievement and never feeling at home. We have a city full we, we are that, aren't we? I mean, I struggle with it. When I first heard the gospel that in Jesus, God died for me, that God, God looked at me, that God said, I see all that you want to be. I see all that you do that, that, that makes other people proud. And I love you. And I see the worst shameful things that you lie about and hide about. And I know that. And it doesn't take away your value. And between hearing the gospel and becoming a Christian, the biggest block I had is like, I don't believe that's true. 
I don't believe that. And I'll be honest with you, today there are still days where I sit there and go, I don't quite know if I can believe that because that's not how the real world works. And yet God just keeps saying, I set you free from that. You don't have to prove anything. You are loved. You are somebody. In the middle of all this taking place in our world, I marvel at how Jesus has clarity about his purpose. And I want you to hear today that we need to be a people that have the exact same clarity of purpose as to why you are here, to why we are here, to have the same standards of success that we see in Jesus. And to be a church that is crystal clear both about who we are today, but who we're called to be tomorrow. Are we proclaiming good news to the poor? Are we setting captives free? Are we restoring sight to the blind? Are we proclaiming to all people the Lord's favor? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would lead us, guide us as to what it means to be this people in this time and place. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.